1: Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll maxi-series on the history of DJs, disco, and electronic dance music hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let Cast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Nate uses AKG microphones and headphones. Today, Nate and Ryan continue their discussion of Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. This week's episode focuses on the many new genres that emerged from Great Britain in the wake of the Acid House Revolution, Hardcore, Jungle, Drum and Bass, and UK Garage. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
0: It's time to let it roll, or should I say techno roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and once again, joined by Ryan Harkness. We're continuing our discussion of Last Night, A DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. And this week, we're talking about UK Sounds. Ryan, this is promises to be a sprawling epic episode, but I think we're going to like they say that this covers Hardcore, Jungle, Drum and Bass, UK Garage, Breaks, Two-Step, Grime, and dubstep. I say we're probably going to cover what they call the British Bass that lays the groundwork for this, and Jungle and Drum and Bass, and UK Garage.
3: Yeah, basically uh, British Bass is a good way of describing this because it's, uh, it's everything that kind of came out of out of that that sound and i think it's worth you know going from hardcore which really is is kind of the precursor and ended up being the precursor to jungle into uk garage with which keeps that bass you know two-step a little bit grime and dub uh kind of kind of just shoehorned in at the end there dubstep you know like everything else from this chapter is basically like 1985 to 1995 and then all of a sudden they're kind of talking about dubstep and that's post 2000 if you really want to get into uh you know anything that's kind of more codified as dubstep than than just kind of um UK garage getting weird so i think you know grime and dubstep just, just put them in the airlock and blow them out we can we can discuss them you know once we get into the next millennia
0: yeah, we'll be back and 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 when we talk about Simon Reynolds' Energy Flash we'll cover those as well but and we'll recover a lot of this ground. I mean, this is this is big doings again. Like like and I think that's what this book excels at is beating you over the head with the main point and honestly making these main points that hadn't been made before. I mean, DJ music had been ignored by writers for the most part, especially book writers. For decades before they they did this stuff, so I don't want to look like we're, you know, throwing stones at the greats here. We're standing on the shoulders of giants. Brewster and Broughton are the giants, and we're just students of theirs trying to get through it. And one thing that I thought they did really well was they tie back in, like when they start the book and they and they go to Jamaica so early on. I think that was that struck me as kind of a non sequitur. Um, I guess it was the fifth chapter, but it was right after Northern Soul. But it's really key. And the key is that, I mean, not only is it, you know, did hip hop come out of, you know, as a grandchild of Jamaican music, but all of this British uh, EDM music is grandchildren of Jamaican music. And that's because the Jamaicans brought their sound systems to London as far back as the 1950s. And they go into it and it was called the blues scene, but it wasn't called blues because they were playing blues like John Lee Hooker. They were playing blues like Blue Beat, which was a precursor to ska and reggae. And the whole bit about having huge sound systems, having MCs and emphasizing the sound quality, that comes out of there. And and they, they discuss the way... The British bass, over the course of those decades, just permeated their society because everybody who'd been out and about in the club scene in England had heard those sound systems and that deep rumbling, even if they were just walking past the club, it was inescapable. And dub sounds were a massive influence on post-punk. You know, Johnny Rotten of of The Sex Pistols goes on to do PIL, which is massively dub influenced The Clash. Sandinista album is massively dub influenced. I mean this stuff became part of the drinking water in Britain. And they say this rogue gene that makes British music different comes from the reggae sound system. The British bass grew fat on music from America, funk, hip-hop, house, and techno, but it came originally from Jamaica. And I think that's just great that they loop that stuff back out and point that stuff, you know, these are obvious things, but, and factually true, but easily overlooked, especially by white writers who were oblivious to this stuff. And the way they've juggled all these different, balls and woven all these different threads together, um, it pays off in the end. I th- one, once you you step away from the book, I think you get a good perspective.
3: Yeah, I think I think what happened is basically, you know, the format of the book gets set out, and each chapter as you go through it uh, deals with a with a different genre. And then as you get further into the book, you start saying, well, you know, the, the, this chapter that's named this doesn't really doesn't really spend all that much time talking about that. And that's kind of a, a weakness in the format of the chapterizing of the book, but I almost feel like maybe, maybe that was kind of imposed afterwards. So there's, to me, the only issue I have with the book is when you go to certain chapters, uh, like say, even UK sounds has this has this issue where the first half of UK sounds, they're, they're spending talking about, you know, the West Indies influence on uh, on the UK scene. And it, it takes you about 15 pages before all of a sudden they, they introduce you to the group that then makes a track which goes to the rave scene and all of a sudden becomes jungle and you're like, holy shit, okay, this is where it all kind of comes together. And, you know, Bill Brewster never passes up on an opportunity to kind of go back to that soul and to go back to that reggae, because uh, if, if you dig into his stuff as a DJ, he's got uh, plenty of, uh, of channels on the Internet where he shares tons of music. And you can tell that's that's where his love is. That's where a lot of his research is. But you're right. It is very important that we kind of talk about it and discuss it, because all of the key names come out of this, this is this really is the bedrock on which everything else is built up on top of. And without knowing that, I, I don't think you're getting a, an accurate picture of what's going on. So, you know, people reading this book who just want to hear about the jungle scene might be disappointed in the fact that we're talking about. Uh, you know, reggae sound systems again, or uh, or, or 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 the the, the weird blue scene, and 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 the warehouse parties that aren't raves, but they're they're West Indies warehouse parties. Like all this might be confusing to somebody who just wants the goods, but this is history, man, and you got to eat your vegetables.
0: Absolutely, and 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 you gotta develop the plot points so you know when the when the denouement comes you understand what's going on and let's go ahead and play one of these first songs this is by shut up and dance the song's called five six seven eight from 1989 it's considered proto jungle and the funny thing about this group at least from the version they tell in this book they did not consider themselves part of the dance scene they thought they were making a contribution to hip-hop from england but it turns out hip hop didn't want to know and the dance scene did. This is Shut Up and Dance, five, six, seven, eight. Shut up and dance, proto jungle hit, five, six, seven, eight. And before we get there, though, we want to talk about Soul to Soul, which they give uh, two sections on. And, and it's pretty interesting that these are, you know, Jazzy B, uh, Bear, Beresford Romeo is his given name, but we all know him as Jazzy B. In the early 90s, I mean, they were ubiquitous. They were right there with CNC Music Factory, uh, massive hits in the U.S., winning Grammys. The the quote about him is they took British bass all the way to the Grammys and these were guys who came out of that reggae scene. They were sort of rebels in that Jazzy B was a soul boy and and um, not just limited to the reggae and Rasta that his older brother had been into and had a wide ranging palette of sounds when he put together the soul to soul sound system. Pretty early on, I mean they put that sound system together on in the early '80s and they don't form what we now know is soul to soul until the late 80s. So they're playing jazz, soul, funk, hip-hop, but also mixing in Tears for Fears, Rolling Stones, you know, really broad palette. And um, they move around the warehouse scene, and then they have the effrontery to go to the west end, where they're kind of hit with... lot of racism so they up the ante and go downtown they go right to coventry garden or uptown excuse me covent garden in the heart of london in the zero uh zone of the of the underground and they make it and they they have massive hit singles and really lay the groundwork um and are the first black british group to make an impact on the world scene and that's kind of the theme of this whole chapter is that it's Britishers of African descent, by way of the Caribbean usually, who for the first time in history, make their mark on the international music scene. And it's just classic. It's all the symptoms that we talk about, about what makes an innovative scene. It's always the outcasts. It's always the people from the minority group, from the middle of nowhere, that nobody's paying attention to, that come up with the goods. And, and Soul to Soul is sort of harbingers of what we're gonna be seeing coming down the pike in the 90s yeah. with jungle, et cetera.
3: They took, they took kind of what was going on with the underground West Indie warehouse scene and they opened it up a bit and uh, they were run by some seriously ambitious people uh, who, who weren't willing to play by the rules. And they teamed up with white promoters who they w- would keep the cops out. They used to say, like, the uh, the difference between a party getting shut down or not is, is how many white people you have up there to, 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 to get the cops gone. And they <laughs> yes. would, uh, they would throw, over, throw some monster crossover events that really set the stage for the illegal underground rave scene of, of you know, the late 80s, early 90s. These were melting pot events. That were like the precursor to to what we consider as like proper UK underground warehouse raves. If it wasn't for these guys showing the way and 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 opening the door and and crossing crossing ethnic lines and crossing musical lines, I think the you know who knows what the scene would have looked like. Probably like a lot more homogenous and a lot more boring and a lot more uh, stuffy.
0: Yeah, uh, we might not have had jungle at all. I mean, it's hard to say. And they also sneak in. A really important scene and they give it just like two paragraphs of mention but they discuss how trip-hop emerges from bristol's post-reggae sound system scene and so massive attack Portishead, had tricky all those guys get shunted into two paragraphs in this book which is totally fair because those are artists that became you know platinum selling album artists and listening artists and i don't really think were central to the dance club experience of the 90s which is the focus of this book
3: yeah every time you get ready to get angry at at this book for not including xyz i think most of the time you have to look at uh, the like the focus of the book it's not the entire dance scene it's 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 really trying to trying to just focus on the dj and then and then things kind of happening around that so i have to remind myself of that too, because there's a lot of rave stuff that it skips over, and I'm I get pissed off. But then you then you realize, well, what's what was really evolving outside of you know these scenes, as opposed to uh, it, it's not you know DJ culture wasn't wasn't moving forward through this. So.
0: Yeah. And, and anytime you get mad about at the book for not including more, remember, remember it's 600 pages long as is. So <laughs> I don't think any publisher and they have plenty more material. They obviously love and, and put online, you know, it's just, you you have a limit with the book. Plus, you know, our plan is to discuss Simon Reynolds energy flash and Michelangelo Matos's uh, the underground is massive. So we'll be coming back and talking about trip hop for sure. Uh, in both of those books and but now let's get to Shut Up and Dance and the proto-Jungle sound. And so we've got PJ and Smiley, a.k.a. Philip Johnson and Carl Hyman's, with DJ Hype, Kevin Ford. And they say these guys laid down a complete blueprint. From here, jungle was inevitable. And that the other quote I want to drop before I let you talk is decades of reverence for Black American music was wearing thin Britain was tired of being the fanatical collector. It wanted to get on stage, and this is something that had happened before. I mean, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, obviously, were acolytes of American R and B and blues, who took their love of music and just overshadowed all that stuff with you know decades of massive success and fame. But the hardcore British fans. Never went there. I mean, they didn't listen to Beatles. They stuck with their R&B records. They stuck with their Northern Soul records for decades. No matter what the British scene was doing, there was always this body of hardcore fans who were absolutely riveted by what was going on in the black scene in America. And this is the point at which... Britons, especially Black Britons, just throw that off. They're not following Jamaica anymore. They're not following Detroit anymore. They're not following Chicago anymore. They're doing their own thing, and Shut Up and Dance is absolutely
3: pivotal to that. Yeah, I think uh, it's at the point where before you had reverence and uh, and you, you had copying and you had tributes, and now all of a sudden with Shut Up and Dance, you have. What you know, the original producers of the of the music that was sampled would can be considered, considering it a perversion. Uh, th- these people are taking it, and they're disrespecting it, they're pitching everything up to 130 beats per minute, and this is where the breakbeat comes in, and this is where you know soul to soul uh, you listen to it and it's danceable music sure but shut up and dance is where it becomes recognizable as underground dance like we attribute to old school raves it's that sped up breakbeat sound and it, it took somebody to disrespect uh what was going on elsewhere to make something new and this is i think that's kind of uh, a, a reoccurring theme in rave music and also in speed garage, which we'll 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 get to in a bit how uh, you know, the original garage guys were kind of horrified by what the speed garage guys were doing to their music. And speaking of horrifying,
0: um, our next song is a song that was horrifying a lot of people, and the hardcore scene that is epitomized, was such a turnoff to the critics and the hipsters that the whole scene was kind of written off. And in a way, groups like the Prodigy and their song Charlie, which we're going to play now, cleared the space for Jungle to be able to evolve without that scrutiny of the vicious British press. So here's the Prodigy, Charlie. Prodigy doing Charlie, which to many critics at the time epitomized everything that was wrong with hardcore rave, the rave scene itself, and why the London hipsters who had brought this music to England sort of walked away from it or went to a different self club and let the suburban white boys, which is what their assumption was, have their massive Parties. This is the period when, you know, raves are doing 25,000 people events, 35,000 people events, and, you know, the hipsters uh, are
3: tired of it and walk away. And what's your
0: take on the
3: prodigies, Charlie? Well, I mean, uh, it was a big melting pot for a while electronic music you could go to a party and it's a house techno rave hardcore uh, breakbeat uh, jungle every, everything else like that and at a certain point um when it got too fast and it got too weird uh, all there was a there was a split schism, and it was I think one of the one of the biggest kind of things that happened is that that house and techno kind of walked away from the rave scene. They 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 took it take took it. They got sick and tired of being in warehouses and dank basements and places like that, and they took it into the clubs. And from there, all of a sudden, you have this uh, moment where. You know, you have ravers and you have clubbers. And while they, they flirt back and forth, there was snobbery on both sides, not just musically, but morally and regarding aesthetics and lifestyle. And it became a real difference in the scene. And everybody was still kind of listening to everybody's music. But you knew a raver and you knew a clubber. And that was, that was basically how it was divided. So it's, it's kind of interesting that that happened. And I think the biggest part of why that happened is because you had house and techno vying for respectability. Well, I mean, it happened because people who were listening to house and techno were too old to keep on going into a wet field and almost getting pneumonia, but it also happened because they were striving for respectability. So all of a sudden, uh, you know, house is serious, house is soulful, house has meaning. But this shit like Charlie... You know, it, it's sampling a, a PSA about pedophiles. So what is this? You know, the Prodigy got a lot of heat back then, and it's funny because the Prodigy ends up coming back around in the, the the late '90s and saves Electronica because it actually charts properly. But back in the day, Mixmag was 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 pouncing on Prodigy as being the harbingers for the end of the scene. This is uh, this is the the intellectual bankruptcy. This is the end of the line for this music. It's gone into novelty status and. It's going to just curl up and die any moment.
0: Yeah, and one thing we should point out, which the, the authors point out, is that this is also a period of time when the drugs change, and you can't get quality X anymore. As somebody who was lucky enough and old enough to take legal X in Dallas one time, I have never had that experience again, and I've tried. I've taken all kinds of crap. Never gotten that pure X. And, and you know, MDEA, which is a variation of MDMA, which is the X molecule, was out there. A lot of the stuff that was out there was was amphetamine, was just speed. And it started to become known as just pills rather than X. In America, at least, also a lot of bad acid. LSD was going around being sold as X, which is a totally different thing. And if you're looking for, you know, a, a love trip and you, and you get – some acid man. I mean, you can have some bad experiences that way, and and so, you know, the hipsters move on. I also find it interesting that you know one of the great things about acid house was that it democratized the scene. That that it took away the snobby exclusivity of the doorman. That was you know a legacy of Studio Fifty Four, and in England, a legacy of the New Romantic and the Jazz Funk scene. And of course, the English reintroduced the classism uh, as soon as you know that wave of, of innovators was too old to be on the fields with the hicks. But it, it has that ironic outcome of providing cover for the jungle scene that's emerging in what is thought of as the hardcore house scene. So um, just ironic how these things happen because that British press has overhyped and over-scrutinized so many infant scenes that it's killed him in the cradle time and time again. So it's a real blessing that you know the prodigy was out there embarrassing themselves and everybody else. And I honestly like the prodigy. I like that song just fine, but I'm just sort of echoing the way it was viewed at the time. And we also should mention they talk about the bleep and bass scene in Sheffield, which was kind of precocious. It's it's one of those shitty northern industrial Midlands English towns that has this artsy legacy. It's the home of Cabaret Voltaire, Heaven 17, Human League, ABC. So they were way early on the synth pop scene, largely because of Cabaret Voltaire. And so you had groups like Chime and their song Orbital, which, you know, introduced... Uh, uh, Orbital and their song Chime. Yeah, yes, yes, thank you, thank you. Um, absolute brain fart there. But they they put out the Believe in Bass anthem, and they later go on to, to you know become a darlings of the progressive house scene, and they're kind of one of the groups that the critics are watching when they're ignoring Jungle. Um, so I just wanted to mention well, that yeah scene. this yeah,
3: this, this, this was like the serious, the serious dance, because obviously you had the stuff for warehouses and uh, and then you had serious sitting down and listening to music, and there's a lot of great electronica that came out of the UK, especially the stuff with dub elements and, and, and everything. The bleep and bass stuff, to me, it's a bit of a precursor. It's very... It, I don't think it ages super well. Uh, maybe if you heard it on a good system, but it's funny. You read the book and they talk about some of the tracks like Nightmare on Wax's Dexterous, which was said to be so bass heavy and crazy that it couldn't be cut properly to vinyl because the record grooves were just too deep and wide. It would just end up basically like cutting into a flat disc again. But you listen to Dextrous now and it just sounds so tinny and flat. Be- bleep and Bass is one of those electronic music snapshots that really wears its age as far as, you know, technical what was going on and and just, uh, creativity, as far as creativity goes, what was going on like, uh, orbitals chime is one of those tracks that, that nowadays, if you put it out, people would be like, well, music theory says that all of this is a mess. This is the (laughs) dog's breakfast of, 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 of different keys and tones and, and it sounds off and they're right, but it also sounds good. You know, this is the stuff that you could only get away before the rules were really codified.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and it creates, you know, it's just this period of turbulence and preparing for schism. I mean, when you have a synthetic scene that synthesizes a lot of elements and brings things together the way Acid House did, and by Acid House, I mean the scene in England, not the micro genre of house with the distorted Roland 303 bass sounds, but the explosion of electronic dance music that hit England. Whenever you have something that unites that many people, it's just a countdown until those people start to splinter off and form their own uh, micro genres. And that's exactly what happened here. So you have this period and also Belgian techno, which we talked about in the last couple of weeks is big in this era. And so there's a lot of stuff going on, but, Happy hardcore kind of lays the groundwork for jungle. I mean, there's a quote in there that, you know, house had become middle-class bullshit, so boring and predictable. Jungle's truer to humanity's real roots. It gives you the ups and downs, the dark and the light. And and it also fits in with the vibe. I mean, the police are chasing the ravers all over the country. The... Serious criminals have moved in on the drug distribution. Like I said, you can't get real X. You're getting garbage. So it's just a darker scene. And also it's darker because more black people are getting involved in asserting themselves. And you can't discount racism for how that stuff was perceived. And in fact, the term jungle was kind of, you know, a racist code word initially that people took on to reclaim. And so it's just, it's just a lot of fascinating dynamics, but you get a generation of DJs like Groove Rider, Jumping Jack Frost, Kenny Kin, Mickey Finn, who use that elements of horror movies and fear and create this dark, brooding, ominous music to express themselves. And for a while, at least it fits. It's a darker vibe, but like they say, it's not scary or unpleasant.
3: Yeah. It's not, uh, it it, it 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 plays itself as so serious, but uh, you know there's there's something else going on beyond that.
0: Yeah, and and it's the right music for the right time. Although it's gonna lay, as always, <clears throat> a scene's virtues lay the seeds for its downfall later on, and and this seriousness, and <clears throat> the way that it draws in, especially dudes, is gonna prevent an opportunity for its rival that emerges, which is UK garage. <laughs> that um, comes up. But let's hear from our sponsor. And when we come back, we'll talk about UK garage and the counter to jungle and drum, drum and bass. And so I tease everybody with UK garage, but we still have some more stuff to say about jungle. Like this quote, we ghettoed out the whole fucking place, man. So, so group Rider and his cohorts, DJ Fabio, get a rage night at heaven the, the legendary high-energy gay disco mecca of London is still dominating the scene. And so many of these genres start out basically when their DJs get a dedicated night. And this is no exception. And it's successful initially, but eventually the promoters have to don't have to, but they choose to shut it down because like they said, we get it out the whole place. So there's definitely a lot of racial dynamics and
3: a lot going on here yeah and you're seeing scenes like i was talking before about the club scene and the rave scene and now jungle scene becomes its own separate thing like it's big and it's not just music it's a whole subculture that's separate from rave culture uk club culture it's it's its own very specific thing and that has its pros and its cons its cons being it seems to have driven away a lot of the ladies
0: Yes. And that'll always hurt you commercially in the long run. But it's also interesting that a lot of important artists are coming out, producers who are making records, and they talk about the way that the DJ would kind of drive this because a DJ had so much power to pitch records, to blend records, to mix records, to take sections of records. So DJs were essentially telling the producers who are out on the floor what they want to hear. And if a DJ pitches up all his records, they say that next week they'd have 10 producers handing him tracks where they where they're giving him already pitched up records. So
3: And you got guys like Carl Cox, who are on three turntables, smashing tracks together and giving people ideas that that basically cross-pollinate across genres. So these guys are hearing new sounds being created by the DJs and then codifying that in releases that they would come back and then give to the DJs to play the less skilled DJs to be able to play it on one turntable.
0: Yeah, exactly, and and this is the music that's pushing the technology at the time. The, the Jungle is a, is, a, is a music that demands a lot of, I mean, now it would be just any crappy laptop would have the processing power to do this stuff, but in the 90s, it took it took a lot of cleverness because these were not people with expensive budgets and big studios. These are kids recording records in their houses, and they're, they're tricking these systems out into and, and rigging them and getting them to do things that weren't thought possible. It's also a period when you have people like a guy called Gerald, who we talked about before, and Goldie, the man named Clifford Price by his parents, who start making records that are very important and in a lot of books these guys would be the centerpiece but this book tries to keep the focus on the dj so you're going to mention these innovative producers and i mean like a guy called gerald does a whole album black secret technology which if you can track down i think it's on Bandcamp, not usually on most of the streaming services that one's a favorite of mine well worth tracking down but again um the djs are driving the scene and i think that's Something that's apparent to anybody who goes out to clubs and, and, and hears the stuff live, it's very different when you hear a DJ playing it to what you hear if you just take the records home and play them yourself, and I mean, if you're hearing the- a decent DJ.
3: The fact that it's democratized ends up being kind of a problem for some of the people in the scene because the music goes in directions that they don't want it to. There's uh, an interesting uh, little footnote in the book about how Raga jungle comes along and it causes such a, a negative reaction from the drum and bass, the drum and bass scene, and the people who are once again. This is at that point where you're trying to you're trying to get some uh, serious attention. You're trying to be taken seriously as a genre. Uh, people in jungle. Uh, Then there's the drum and bass people who are a little bit stuffier about it. And the drum and bass people set up the drum and bass committee to try and shut down Ragged Jungle before it comes in and basically rolls over everything.
0: And fail. Um, And it's just classic that they try to put together a committee to stop uh, a pop culture wave. But yeah, General Levy and Beat put out Incredible. And there's this massive backlash. And can you... I've always struggled with this. What's the difference between jungle and drum and bass?
3: Okay, well, well jungle is—I'm going to get castigated if I get this wrong—but jungle basically started it all, um, and it's more breakbeat oriented. While well, drum and bass, you're creating your own. It's—it's—it's uh, it's, it's the drums are being created, so it, it's less sample-based, um, and intelligent drum and bass gets even in, deeper in there with, uh, you know, uh, less less natural more robotic sounds it's kind of like how when when you had disco and house and techno and it just kind of got more and more robotic so jungle is 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 drum and bass at its most fluid and natural and 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 sample based while drum and bass gets more more, uh, more into the, uh, into the drum machines and an intelligent drum and bass just goes in there and, and just turns it into a, into a complete computerized melange. So that's kind of how I've always understood it. And that that's how I've always kind of uh, distinguished it when we've been booking it for parties and stuff like that is, uh, and then Raga it obviously just br- brings in just brings in a ton more of the Jamaican influence. And uh, and it was interesting because I wish I had more time to research this because I do have a lot of friends that I could talk to that are infinitely more knowledgeable about the history of jungle. Like the way that the scene divided, I was on the rave side and then the jungle side, we would book a jungle room sometimes and I'd have someone come in and and do it because I just didn't have the knowledge for it. But I was always kind of curious about what was the deal with Raga? Why did, why did people react to, to Raga so negatively? Was it, was it, was it a, was it the, 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 the crowd or, you know, the book implies it's the crowd and the energy that it brought with it. And there may be a criminal element, but I also know junglists who get real huffy if too much Raga is getting played on, on a night because uh, they they just find it to be kind of, uh, I don't know, more low brow yeah
0: I mean the, there's a lot going into it and and people have the right to associate with who they want to associate with and not go to clubs that they don't like the crowd and not listen to records they don't like but um there's also an element of sort of fighting the tides of history with the broom you know you're out there sweeping the tide and and you know <laughs> you're just not gonna not gonna win that fight but um a ton of stuff going on here and and like you mentioned this is a scene that starts to, become testosterone heavy and starts to alienate women and that creates an opportunity and they say you know by 1991 people either wanted it hard or they wanted the other thing and so you get people like dj timmy magic at, at hastings um and, and they describe a pretty interesting scene at this club at Stearns and Hastings in the late 80s that had three stories, uh, it was probably early 90s, three stories. The top floor had the breakbeat and the proto-drum bass going on. The ground floor had DJ Carl Cox doing hardcore techno. And the middle floor had um, a bunch of DJs, the Rhythm Doctor, Femi B, DJ Harvey, and Justin Berkman, who later go on to found the Ministry of Sound, that are gestating garage, garage,
3: so it's it's all you have to say it the UK way garage, yeah, I'm, garage. I'm trying I'm trying
0: it's hard for a Texan to do garage
3: that. garage it's
0: garage yeah. but it's useful because there's already garage music which is a, a you know old American form of punk rock that's very different the it's probably the most popular furthest thing possible from UK garage. So um,
3: yeah, to- just just a reminder for those who weren't listening to earlier episodes when we kind of went into garage. Uh, when we're talking about garage music in terms of dance music, we're talking about uh, uh, ba- basically uh, the, the the New York uh, uh, Paradise Garage, uh, which was DJed by Larry Levin. And Paradise Garage in in New York City that that was basically. What, what came out of Disco after Disco died, the house that kind of existed and the torch that was carried on out of the, the death of Disco. And Paradise Garage is considered the gold standard for, for, for house. And uh, out of that... People like Justin Berkman, who spent time at Paradise Garage, wanted to bring this sound back to the UK. And that's where that kind of house music is happening on that middle floor. But then it starts morphing because, uh, you know, the UK people are, you know, Justin Berkman has, has that, that love and that appreciation and he wants to, to mirror what was going on in New York. But these other UK DJs start messing with it and doing, doing weird stuff to it and throwing that, that UK bass in there.
0: Yeah, and DJ Tony Humphreys, who sort of codified the garage sound in New Jersey, uh, shortly after Larry Levin um, was running the, the club, The Paradise in New York, he actually was brought over to the Ministry of Sound as a weekly resident DJ, and they knew that they had created something new when he plays a set and flops. Like, he'd been over there going well, going great guns, but... The UK producers start speeding things up. They add that British bass. They start applying some of the tricks that the jungle and drum and bass producers are doing. And eventually comes a time when Tony Humphreys' children don't recognize him or his musical grandchildren and, and reject him. So that's. Um,
3: yeah, Tony Humphreys was, was somewhat horrified by what the UK guys were doing to the tracks. And he said he'd never play the tracks like that because he knew the artists that wrote them and he wouldn't be able to look them in the eye after putting that level of disrespect on their music. Cause uh, you know, we've talked about in the past how remix culture never caught on with band music because there was too much ego attached to the finished project product of a song. Right. And uh, yeah, but you you see this in some of the more stuck up forms of dance music too. And for Tony Humphrey's, he was always big on lyrical content. He's hearing all the soulful and important music, getting, getting the hardcore treatment. They're pitching it up. They're pitching up They're They're taking samples and slicing them to bits. There's chipmunk lyrics. They're adding ridiculous bass to it. They're playing it at plus eight. They're doing everything, but putting a donk on it. So this is just too much for, for old guys like him to take. And it's just the way it goes. You know, your pioneers like Tony Humphreys who codify garage end up coming to the uk and going like this is this is this is speed garage that's (laughs) how it goes and let's hear a little
0: bit of it this is bizarre inc's took my love from 1992 speed garage And that was Took My Love by Bizarre Inc., an example of Speed Garage uh, at its finest. And this was the sound that reintroduces aspirational clubbing, or it's the sound that's in the background while the Ministry of Sound reintroduces aspirational clubbing. It's glamorous, it's fancy... And it brings in the girls and anytime you have a scene that packs in the girls, the dudes are going to change their ways (laughs) and follow. And, and, you know, the dudes are out there jungling it up and, and, um, the women just opt out and go to the, to the fancier, more polished, more comfortable clubs. And over the course of the nineties, this stuff, takes over the British dance and eventually the the British pop scene.
3: Yeah, you, you kind of remember when C.J. Boland's Sugar is Sweeter, the uh, Armin van Helden mix came out and they had that video with the girl with the big eyes and that was always on television. And and you remember the Speed Garage bass. Like once once you heard that sample that we played, all of a sudden you play Speed Garage and you're like, oh, I remember that. I remember that that period of time where where basic, where that, that bass would be coming out at any trendy coffee shop or if you were, you were at a place with two, with the drinks, if the drinks were like 15 bucks then you might be hearing speaker rush too
0: yep it's um it was a very interesting period because this is also the same period when the trip hop artists that we mentioned and people like moby are breaking into the album market in the u.s when when dinosaurs like rolling stone magazine are suddenly covering dance music it's when it's or electronic music it's when it's morphed into a form that's coming as an album on a cd with an artist and a singer and it's packaged in the way that they're familiar with for rock and roll music so it's kind of a confusing time because i was hearing the stuff you know like fat boy slim who's british who seems to be electronic dance music and i'm hearing that then i go to england expecting to hear that kind of stuff and instead i'm hearing stuff like you know sugar is sweeter um And and Rip Groove by Double Ninety Nine that is is absolutely really different from Fatboy Slim. Can you explain what was going on? Like what? How does Fatboy Slim and that sort of stuff fit into? the club scene at all, or is it totally bifurcated and has a relationship on this? Uh,
3: Well, I mean, the whole thing was at this point, uh, you've you've got these different scenes and and they've all got the walls up in the UK. Anyways, you know, you go to a a garage night and you're going to get garage. And if you go to a big beat night, you're going to get big beats. So you were just in the wrong place. You go to, you go to uh, any of these trendy clubs and they're going to be playing uh, serious house or boring progressive trance. And you're not going to hear party music like serious, straightforward, uh, party music like what Fatboy Slim basically was doing back in his 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 early Brighton days. Uh, so, I mean, there there was a there was a sheen over all dance music. The, all the clubs were were doing dance music, but as far as I was concerned, they weren't doing it right. I remember going over to the UK and and going to some clubs expecting some really exciting stuff, and it just being, uh, you know, what was uh, what was the the mainstream, uh, popular stuff you know just just kind of it was not not what i was looking for you had to you had to dig a bit deeper you had to you had to go to a couple of more interesting corners to to find to find the the what i consider the exciting stuff now this is this is us and our musical tastes being exposed and stuff but uh you know if you're wondering where fatboy slim was at the time it's uh, you know it's it's rowdier party music
0: I see. I see. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, I'm I'm making no bones. I was not hip to the scene at the time, although I was sentient and aware and young and out and about, so I could not help but hearing it. I just didn't have any context because I'm a reader primarily, and I wasn't it wasn't even possible for me to get the UK magazines. I guess I knew people who were going to the trouble of having that stuff imported.
3: but um, they I, got, I lived my life through the uh, – when I was uh, 17 years old, I got a job at a magazine shop. So I, I lived my life through the entire UK import uh, like magazine sections. I, I went through all the mag uh, mix mags and DJ mags and ID and face and all the rest of that. And I was, at the end of the month, all the uh, unsold issues, I got to pop the, the free CDs off the front of the magazine before stripping the covers off and sending them back. So I, I got a, I, I never got to experience a lot of what was going on up until uh, after 2000, where I was old enough to, to do whatever I wanted to do. But for those five years, 95 to 2000, I basically experienced secondhand through all those magazines, all that clubbing and raving and man, it looked like a good time.
0: <laughs> it did, And I got to say for anybody who missed the nineties, there were a lot of good times to be had in those uh, halcyon days. And the music keeps changing though. As you get into the late nineties, the four to the floor bass drum sound becomes kind of tedious and so two-step evolves where it's still 4-4 music but they're not dropping the bass one two three four they're dropping the bass one three one three and you get a whole new you know genre starting with uh, Tina Moore's Never Gonna Let You Go and you know by 2000 Garage is the national sound with groups like Artful Dodger, Rewind, and Fill Me In. Uh, the stuff is big, but the music is again changing underneath. And and they talk about grime very quickly, and and definitely want to come back to grime on this show because it's a totally fascinating genre. But you know, if if Jungle is the first indigenous black scene to come out of Britain and make a national impact then grime is the first indigenous british hip-hop sound to come out and make an international impact like when shut up and dance were trying to introduce their british take on hip-hop hip-hop didn't want to know about it in the early 90s i mean this was the golden age of hip-hop and, and you know it's pretty hard to cut in on Public Enemy and Eric B. and Rakim and and all that. Like you know, the the scene was too hot in America and and too nascent uh, to hear sounds coming from other countries. Just African Americans just refused to believe that British people, no matter how black they were, had anything to say to hip hop. So showed up and dance ends up in the dance scene. But now Grime evolves, and it's totally built on this foundation of Jungle Drum and Bass and UK Speed Garage and these kids insist on rapping over it and let's hear a song that was another song that was so outrageous that it inspired a committee to form <laughs> in protest. This is Bound for de Reload by Oxide and Neutrino of the So Solid Crew.
2: The reload,
0: for the for the reload. And that was bound for the reload by oxide and neutrino members of the So Solid crew. And yeah. What's so terrible about that song that DJs felt compelled to form a committee to try to blackball and ban it?
3: I think it's uh, it's always what happens if you're a DJ and you got a night and you got all these people at your night and then all of a sudden a new night shows up playing a slightly different kind of music and all of your people go over there. That's when you start a committee to say let's get rid of this crap.
0: <laughs> yep, it's it's been going on in England at least since the uh, Rolling Stones crushed the trad jazz scene and and you know the trad jazzers responded with petitions and protests and tried to get the the Stones kicked off the jazz festival. And what happened instead was the next time they had a festival, it was the blues festival and the stones are ad And so, yeah, it's, it's trying to fight the ocean with a broom here and give us a little background on grime. Like as a fan of EDM what do you hear when you hear grime records like people like Dizzy Rascal and others and then that stuff got big enough that it penetrated my consciousness and what is the blend that you see underlying
3: grime the beats of grime to me it's just uh, it's just the next generation putting their own spin on things it's it's it, it, you see, you see where it's coming from, and you see where it's going, and you see the influences, and you just see the new generation coming and doing it, and, and effortlessly creating this new something out of out of out of uh, disparate parts. And uh, I can, I guess, I can see. Why? Why people were kind of weirded out by it? Because all you're, once again, any any time that you have something kind of underground that starts taking elements of maybe main, not mainstream hip hop, but but starts starts moving out and, and and combining scenes that weren't combined before, people get a little bit nervous, or people. Uh, people push back because they feel like it's encroaching on their land. But, uh, you know, I've never had a problem with grime. I don't know if I would, you know, feature it at one of my events or anything like that, but because it was just too different of a scene from what we were up to. But um, I like the sound. That's what I can say.
0: Yeah, it's it's again, I think that the introduction of vocals immediately starts pulling music in the direction of listening music rather than dancing music. I mean, that's, you know, if you look back at the pop charts from the twenties all the way through the sixties, you see a ton of instrumental records on the pop charts. And if you think about it, like I remember going, what's the deal? Why were people so into instrumentals? And then, ah, that's because that's what they were dancing to. And that's the same thing, the split that you see in the eighties between hip hop and house, which, as we've discussed come out of the same DJ based tradition of musics but because hip hop always had that DJ tradition or MC tradition with the rapping and house didn't house became a dance music hip hop became an album and a listening and a concert music. And and I think grime pulls dance music back in that listening, sit down and listen direction, um, whether it tries to or not, it's just, you can either dance or you can sit down and listen to the lyrics and, and you're going to have that thing. So we've got enough time. I didn't think we'd, we'd get here, but we can talk about the dreaded dubstep a little bit. What's dubstep? Where does it come from? Where does it go?
3: Oh man. Uh, my knowledge of dubstep is 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 limited more to bro step uh that that was kind of when i started paying attention to the early uh the the way that dubstep kind of came out of one thing i can say about this chapter and w- when they say uk sounds it's not quite clear but when they say british bass it makes sense because you hear the british bass in speed garage and you hear the british bass obviously in jungle and then you hear that again in dubstep and and for me Uh, I I never followed through with Dubstep up until I heard Burial uh, in in the 2000s, and that was when I kind of started paying attention to it. And then it went Brostep, which is uh, considered the Skrillex type stuff with the big drops that turned into like big EDM bait. And then it goes even further into weird stuff like vomit step of which, you know, my, uh, my neighboring city of Montreal, Canada is a huge vomit step hub. So we get tons of vomit step, which is as enjoyable as it sounds. <laughs>
0: I, I, I suspect you're showing your age, Mr. Harkness. Vomit step is the future.
3: I, <laughs> you know I, what? I, I actually, I actually dig it. You know, if you're looking for some really new interesting Synthesis, then, then vomit step is, you know, it, it sounds like feedback when you plug in a guitar, but sometimes it just tickles, you know, it just hits that right frequency and, and you're like, a, you're like a cat that's just getting scratched behind the ear in exactly that right spot.
0: Oh, I'm gonna have to check that out. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's also I, I think that when they published the book, at least the first edition, this was long before dubstep. Had it had evolved or begun to emerge, but it's long before it, it goes on to basically be the subgenre that breaks EDM to the American pop audience. It happens at the same time as Daft Punk is, is, is breaking to the American audience. So it's not just dubstep, but there's definitely a period when Skrillex was so
3: big, even my lame 40 something year old ass, had to notice that Skrillex existed. And, and all of these uh, kind of genres were having their crossover artists, like Pendulum was blowing the, the roof off of uh, Drum and Bass and Jungle and, and crossing over, maybe not as large on, on the charts or or anything like that, but they had a really outsized influence on the scene and they created you know if if skrillex did brostep, then pendulum kind of created this this new uh, uh jungle that was all about big drops big hits and and just uh wild wild partying
0: Yeah, and there's always a market for wild party. And so I think we've wrapped our discussion of UK sounds. And again, we're going to come back to this with Energy Flash in a big way. And also, uh, Underground is Massive is going to talk about this stuff. So we've kind of compressed a decade and a half of... Massive serial innovation and new genre development that happened in England in the nineties into an hour. So yes, and, this is- and,
3: and and even the book kind of compresses all of the. Uh, underground rave stuff into maybe four or five paragraphs amongst across the acid house chapter and the UK sounds chapter so it it doesn't get much of a mention in this book we'll definitely cover it in energy flash I feel like there could be an entire show just talking about that one statement you know by 1993 uh, organized crime had moved in and the drugs were no good anymore it's like oh there's, there's so many different scenes there wasn't just one big monolith and there was a lot going on not just in the UK but in Europe and in North America that's worth discussing and I'm sure with Energy Flash we'll we'll really start getting into that into the into that ravy gravy
0: Yes, we absolutely will. There'll be lots of discussion of the police crackdowns and the drugs and, and the various um, innovations and and you know the second wave of techno coming out of Detroit and how that hit England, et cetera, et cetera. But for us, we're going to stick with Last Night of DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton for a few more chapters. And next time we'll be talking about the chapter they call Artist. So we'll hear about... The evolution of the DJ from somebody who just plays records to somebody who is seen as a musician,
3: and, an and this is this is where Fatboy Slim comes in too. So we can maybe get a little bit more clarity on that Fatboy situation.
0: Exactly, which we need to do. So for Ryan Hardness, this is Nate Wilcox. It's been techno roll.
1: Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. Nate and Ryan will be back next week to continue their discussion of Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, The History of the Disc Jockey by Bill Brewster and Frank Broughton. They'll be discussing the rise of DJs as recording artists in their own right. Let it roll as a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. night a dj Save my life the history of the disc jockey is published by grove press please support our show by ordering via the amazon referral link on our website let it roll podcast.com
3: bored of binging on box sets try something new Try Chumba Casino. Over a million players love playing our fun casino-style games every single day. You'll find hundreds of games to choose from and some amazing prizes, too. Join the Chumba fun. Head over to ChumbaCasino.com where you can always play for free. That's Chumba, C-H-U-M-B-A, Casino.com. Play for free. Play for fun. Play now. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 92%